Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name's John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messerschmidt. It's the week of May 2nd to May 5th. Look how expertly I figured out what week it was. Wow. Preparedness. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Next to cleanliness. F- figure out where you are. It's Cinco de Mayo. It's a beautiful day outside. I, I hope you're listening to this while doing something fun. Drinking a margarita. Perhaps. Preferably. Or five shots of tequila, if that's what you want to Well, do. that's true. If that's how you want to start the day at, you know... <laughs> 10 30 a.m you know some weeks are like that i don't uh i don't i don't judge or if you're just gonna enjoy the day enjoy nature enjoy life get outside yeah get some sunshine we all need a little sunshine in our lives amen to that and we have some sunshine from the nebraska supreme court this morning oh yes we do Um, let's do a little ex parte summary i believe you have the first one yes ex parte summary carson versus steinecke uh, medical malpractice standard of care I have State v. Vaughn, and are you ready? Smelly Zipper. <laughs> that sounds like a parody song. Anyway, we'll get uh, there. Paxton versus Paxton. Jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. Let's get going with the Nebraska Supreme Court. Carson. So we start off with a medical malpractice case coming out of the district court for uh, Hall County. Um, And the facts here are essentially there was um, a number of issues with uh, the birth of the Carson's uh, child. um, And this all happened at the St. Francis Medical Center in uh, Grand Island. Um, And here, you know, we don't really get to um, the reason Uh, things happened other than it appears that the umbilical cord was up pretty high on the uh, Carson's uh, child and um, that that led to eventually there being a uh, c-section and um, some loss of of oxygen and uh, difficulties that then occurred with the Carson's uh, child eventually this results the uh, child uh, fortunately does um, survive but it results in um, some issues uh, regarding developmental delay and uh, behavioral issues that arise uh, the Carsons believe as a result of this really difficult birth and so uh, all of this culminates in the uh, Carson's filing suit against uh, the primary care physician who uh, came in and took care of um, uh, young Boston is uh, the name of the child, and uh, then the the uh, next physician who uh, oversaw Boston's care uh, after uh, he had been delivered. And uh, the the big issue here, and the value to take from this opinion, um, is all surrounding around expert testimony that ends up not coming in in this case. And uh, as Uh, Many of us know from just first-year torts or from practice, uh, the big issue in medical malpractice cases is standard of care. And the only way to establish a standard of care in a medical malpractice case is to get a um, physician, another physician, to testify about what the standard of care should be. And so uh, here, uh, there's a physician, an expert, who is uh, coming from Iowa, um, and he testifies that he is in a uh, similar, uh, similarly sized and situated community as Grand Island, um, and that the uh, level of treatment center at um, Mercy Hospital in uh, Cedar Rapids, where he works, is the same um, level as St. Francis in Grand Island. 
And so there's various testimony and objections to his testimony. And the big issue um, that comes up is that uh, the doctor here, Dr. Now, testifies that there's essentially a national standard of care and that his hospital is um, what he believes probably close to a mirror image of uh, St. Francis, but that he is not uh, directly knowledgeable about the standard of care at St. Francis because he is not uh, been uh, bereaved of uh, the personnel, the uh, facilities, all of the things that are actually at St. Francis Hospital in Grand Island. And so uh, the district court essentially says that he is not allowed to um, have testimony because uh, they have not uh, met a burden of saying that he is familiar with the the standard of care at St. Francis. And so this becomes the big issue on appeal. And uh, here, uh, the statute at issue is 442810, which is essentially saying that a party who uh, wants to present expert testimony on a standard of care in a medical malpractice case uh, have to show that there's a familiarity with the standard of care in the defendant's locality or a similar locality. And so here, there's a ton of discussion regarding um, now's testimony primarily and whether or not... um, this expert testimony did demonstrate a knowledge of the standard of care. And here now, uh, you know, talks about at length how it's essentially a national standard of care now and that uh, the standard of care is pretty um, much the same across uh, jurisdictions or across areas because of the fact that uh, everyone is held to this uh, national standard. And the Supreme Court essentially says here that, you know, in spite of that fact, they um, are not going to uh, interpret 442810 uh, to allow um, for this national standard of care or um, just allowing someone in a similarly situated community to testify as to what the standard of care is in another locale without actually testi- or testifying to uh, that standard of care. And um, as, as our Supreme Court often does, they kick it back and say that the legislature is putting the burden on um, the plaintiff to have to show that, and there's no uh, burden, sh- burden shifting. And so here, uh, without being able to show that, um, it was not an abuse of discretion to not, to not allow this testimony. And I guess the big value here is uh, you know, simply to go into that discussion of uh, medical expert testimony, the things that you need, the things that you don't need. Uh, there's some discussion from various cases uh, in other jurisdictions, Iowa, Arkansas, uh, talking about um, what testimony is allowed, what testimony isn't allowed, what facts you need, um, and the cases that have been allowed in Nebraska, and then a case here uh, that we see where testimony, expert testimony regarding medical malpractice was not allowed. And uh, in the end, what this meant is that without these uh, expert testimony, there were three experts who testified, though now was uh, probably the most important or the uh, primary expert. Um, this all resulted in a directive verdict, because if you're not able to establish what the standard of care is, you can't demonstrate a breach. And even though one of the experts was able to testify um, as to uh what was believed to be the issue here, uh, the Supreme Court essentially said that it was a possibility, not a probability. And because uh, it was just a possible answer, uh, it did not meet the burden to um, result in the directed verdicts being an abuse of discretion. And so, um, unfortunately, I guess for the Carsons, uh, they were unable to uh, meet their burden here and were unable to have their expert testimony come in uh, regarding various aspects. And uh, the 
Supreme Court affirmed. And I guess, again, the, the big takeaways here are, you know, the standard of care discussions, uh, medical malpractice piece, and then, uh, you know, simply dealing with expert testimony in these areas because, you know, it, it is pretty uh, fact intensive. Yeah. And, and this is one of those, if, if before you get involved in a med mal for a plaintiff or something like that, take a look at this case because you're got a lot to do. Yeah, it's very much an uphill battle. I think we all uh, know that. But yeah. again, there aren't very many med malpractices that come across the Supreme Court desk, it doesn't seem like. And so anytime you get one like this, you know, it's always helpful to take a look at those facts. All right. I had a criminal case, uh, State v. Vaughn. This is uh, a gentleman was ultimately convicted of distributing marijuana and not having his uh, tax stamp, his really cool tax stamps that uh, for drugs. And then also um, was charged initially with um, possession of marijuana more than a pound. So uh, the facts here, Mr. Vaughn was on an Amtrak train across the country. And he, they apparently, this is, I don't know whether it's information that we shouldn't know, but uh, they put it in the opinion. Everybody, all the Amtrak stop in Omaha so that people can search for drugs um, and see whether there's any activity going on of, of drugs. And one of the identifying markers after the law enforcement gets on the Amtrak to see if there's anybody with drugs on the Amtrak is whether there's any unmarked bags uh, or any other kind of shady um, activity so they can investigate. Here, there was an unmarked bag. It was a duffel bag. And the uh, Amtrak employees alerted law enforcement that this uh, duffel bag was unmarked. And the law enforcement individual um, sniffed the zipper. And when the law enforcement individual sniffed the zipper, uh, the law enforcement individual um, smelled the odor of um, marijuana coming from the uh, bag and then decided that that was probable cause and unzipped the bag and found a, a lot of marijuana uh, in the bag. And the uh, law enforcement asked the Amtrak personnel, they said, okay, whose bag is this? Who does it belong to? They said it was this fella in room 12, I believe. So they go over to room 12. Um, this individual, Mr. Vaughn, was sleeping. They wake up Mr. Vaughn and say, hey, um, you know, you want to talk to us about this bag and everything that's in it? And there were statements that were made that were um, incriminating on behalf of Mr. Vaughn at that point. So uh, Mr. Vaughn is charged with those uh, violations and he files a motion to display uh, suppress the motion to suppress was ultimately denied uh, because and this isn't a direct quote but it's basically a quote law enforcement can have probable cause if it smells marijuana on a zipper and the defendant was not in custody when they went to his um, you know sleeping room and that gets weird because you're on a you're on a train which is mobile what's your limited right to privacy on something like that so that gets into that and then there was a motion limine uh, because only three of the 15 bags were tested for delta 9 or not delta 9 just for thc and the uh the uh motion limine suggested that just because three of the 15 bags were tested only those three bags should be uh, admissible and that was uh, also uh, denied at the trial court level Interestingly, um, and I guess not interestingly, this is the right thing to do. They moved to dismiss the possession of marijuana more than a pound uh, because the distribution of marijuana was also based on the fact that it was more than a pound. So that was dismissed at the trial court level on double jeopardy grounds. So um, that's something to be sure and do if there's an overzealous prosecutor trying to get too much uh, out of an individual for those kinds of things. 
Ultimately, Mr. Vaughn was sentenced to four to six years and I think a $10,000 fine for the drug tax stamp. Um, This is just a fun case to read uh, because it's not only got the motion to suppress things, which were ultimately affirmed by the Nebraska Supreme Court, but it's got all these great uh, criminal issues and uh, regarding the, you know, when law enforcement can uh, have probable cause to search things and when they can't. Uh, It was affirmed so they can smell zippers and there's no curtilage on on baggage. It was fun. And now a uh, tip for any clerk of the Nebraska Supreme Court on page 193, there's a typo. It says TCH, where it should be THC, and I say that as a person who cannot spell, and I imagine that's just a word fixer-upper autocorrect thing. So Zipper sniffer. So yeah, in the final th- thing, you might want to fix that. There you go. Could be. I'm an editor now. Who needs dogs when you've got yeah. people? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, and then, and then, okay, here's me. Let's say it's coming from Denver. Yeah. Right? And uh, you maybe smoked a lot of legal pot in Denver, yeah. and your zipper might smell. Maybe your clothes are maybe smelly. Maybe your dirty, smelly clothes from Denver are in that bag. Yeah. Well, guess what? Mr. Law Enforcement Officer can search all your stuff uh, because you were in Denver. Is that weird? It sounds weird. Smelly bag. Smelly bag. All, all right. right. Okay. Uh, last Nebraska Supreme Court case we come to is Paxton versus Paxton. Uh, this is an appeal um, from McPherson County. Uh, and the big thing at issue here is that um, there there was essentially a, a Q-tip trust um, for a Ronald Paxton, which was uh, holding um, a bunch of real estate, approximately 2,200 acres for the benefit of his uh, widow. And here uh, there was an underlying issue where essentially a family dispute led to um, one of uh, Mr. Paxson's children who had been, I'm guessing, either farming or uh, running cattle on these acres, who had been leasing these acres um, from uh, Mr. Paxson's widower, led to him saying, I am the rightful beneficiary to this. Eventually, uh, you're not allowed to uh, you know, take it away from me as far as this lease agreement goes. And so uh, there is a underlying uh, mediation that comes out of this. And then there's a uh, mediation settlement that uh, they ask the district court to enforce. And here, the court essentially makes the limited finding that the settlement memorandum settlement agreement is enforceable. And so there's then there's an appeal from that. And the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court says that that is not a final appealable order. Just finding that the settlement settlement agreement is enforceable is not a final appealable order. And so therefore they lack appellate jurisdiction. And um, since it does not um, affect a material right, then uh, there is no jurisdiction on this appeal. And um, therefore they uh, dismiss the uh, matter for lack of appellate jurisdiction. All right, that's it for Nebraska Supreme Court. I think we're going to start with the Court of Appeals, and I think it's back to you, right? Yes, I believe so. Uh, so the first case we come to is State versus Wyrick, which is uh, an extensive opinion, 37 whopping pages, um, a case out of Lancaster County. And here the facts are uh, very important, but I will try to sum them up as briefly as I can. Uh, so very interestingly here, Wyrick is um, an individual who is initially charged with third-degree assault, criminal trespass, criminal mischief, and obstruction of a uh, police officer. 
In the meantime, there's a competency evaluation that is ordered and completed on Wyrick in the um, interim. He is found not mentally competent as a part of that case to stand trial and is ordered uh, to have appropriate treatment at the Lincoln Regional Center. However, at the time of the order, the Regional Center doesn't have any beds, and so Wyrick is released until one is available. In that brief interim, Wyrick has um, an altercation with an individual, a Jeremy Lane, um, essentially where, uh, you know, there's the facts are a little bit um, uh, unclear, but essentially Lane um, and Wyrick exchange words. Um, Wyrick apparently pulls up his gun or pulls up his shirt and reveals the hilt of a gun. Um, Lane then goes back into his house um, and gets a knife and charges uh, Wyrick. They end up fighting and um, Wyrick gets control of the knife, stabs Lane and Lane's, Lane ends up dying which is the uh, underlying part of this case. Well, then at some point, Wyrick is um, arrested, picked up, and uh, interviewed. And here, because Wyrick was found mentally incompetent in this underlying case or in this misdemeanor, um, in all these misdemeanor matters, the issue or the main issue is whether or not his Miranda waiver um, was voluntarily made. And so the Court of Appeals goes through a thorough discussion of uh, all of the factors and finding whether or not a um, waiver is is voluntarily made. And here, um, essentially, they say that just because a person is mentally ill, that doesn't automatically mean that uh, the waiver is um, involuntary. And it has to uh, go through a number of factors, a number of tests. And even though Wyrick says that there should have been more uh, weight put on the fact that he was uh, found mentally incompetent in this other case. The Court of Appeals says uh, no, that is uh, but just one factor, and all the evidence here pointed to the fact that this was voluntarily made, and so um, there there is no issue with uh, his Fifth Fifth Amendment rights not being protected, not being voluntarily, know, knowingly, and intelligently waived. And then there's um, some additional discussion on motions in limine regarding evidence, um, the the uh, video evidence here, uh, the second degree murder charge, uh, because again, this was uh, a big issue with um, a, a sudden quarrel, uh, the use of the deadly weapon, and then there's um, various arguments as far as ineffective assistance of counsel um, for multiple uh, things. But the big um, discussion again, and I think the things that uh, you come into come into this case to look at are the uh, Miranda waivers and the discussion of that because those are the the big pieces. And then of course there is the final uh, discussion of excessive sentence, and there it was uh, within statutory ranges and and no issues. So. In the end, uh, this was affirmed, but I do think it is a case where there is some value to be found in, um, you know, the various discussions of law, but especially in that piece um, about knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waiving um, your right to uh, Miranda and uh, your right to remain silent. So, All right. State v. Sierra. This is a post-conviction case out of York County. Mr. Sierra was convicted of uh, burglary and some other matters uh, in 2018. And then he went up through the direct appeal, and then um, this is the post-conviction. Now, the post-conviction, there's a number of issues that he raises regarding, you know, um, ineffective assistance of counsel, and ultimately, at the trial court level, he was denied an evidentiary hearing. The big uh, issues that he brings up, one is an alibi defense, 
Um, he says that he had witnesses for an alibi defense that were provided to defense counsel at the trial court level. Uh, defense counsel didn't raise those uh, in sufficient time prior to trial. I think raised them five days before trial. There was a motion in limine filed by the state saying, hey, we didn't have proper notice of this alibi defense. And it was granted, um, so he said he, uh, you know, was denied the alibi defense. Now, under the in the post conviction, when they did do a little evidentiary information, the person who was going to provide the alib- uh, alibi defense, there was only one person, um, gave facts that would not necessarily be an alibi defense. They were they were like, well, I wasn't there; uh, he wasn't here at that time, but he was here earlier that evening. So that's not exactly an alibi. Regardless, um, that's ultimately what the uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals found here as far as whether that should have necessitated a uh, evidentiary hearing on the, po- uh, on the request for post-conviction relief. But there is, you know, whenever you get one of these cases, there's also some information regarding what, you know, the underlying standards for an alibi defense. you got to do it 30 days before uh, trial. you got to, and there's other um factors involved in presenting that alibi defense that are uh, laid out fairly well in this case. There's also, uh, you know, the other issue, defense counsel here was uh, charged with a crime during the, you know, after the trial, but before the sentencing. Um, So the defense counsel was charged, I believe, with theft and voluntarily surrendered her license at a certain point. Um, So there was some discussion about whether that also provided ineffective assistance of counsel during this time. And they resolve it ultimately by saying that the denial of post-conviction was not clearly erroneous, and they affirm the trial court. Okay, next case we come to is Nelson Engineering and Construction versus Austin Building and Design. And the big issue here is um, that there um, is a motion by Austin in um, federal court to uh, compel arbitration in uh, the U.S. District Court for the uh, District of Nebraska. At the same time, uh, there is a pending proceeding in district court. And there, um, Austin filed a motion in district court to uh, stay that action um, pending the uh, merits of the uh, arbitration issue in uh, federal court. And here, the... um, District Court denied the motion to stay, and the Court of Appeals says that uh, just because the court had denied the motion to stay does not mean um, that a um, substantial right has been impacted, um, and the District Court, and it doesn't mean that the uh, District Court also erred in addressing the um, enforcement of the arbitration clause. And so uh, here they're saying, had they, you know, maybe denied arbitration or something like that, that may have been a substantial right that would have resulted in a final appealable order. But um, because of the fact that they simply denied a motion to stay the action pending um, an arbitration in um, federal court, that was not a, a final appealable order. And so therefore, uh, they dismissed the appeal. The next one I have is State v. Yoast. It's a speedy trial case. It's uh, four pages long, which is long enough to do a little math. Um, There's really no particular issues except the math for doing the motion to discharge or review. And ultimately, the uh, trial court's decision to deny the uh, motion for absolute discharge was affirmed on appeal. Um, I guess the only thing here is that they focused on the statutory right for a motion to discharge this misdemeanor issue as opposed to a 
um, constitutional right. Um, and then they argue the constitutional right uh, on appeal. So that's the only thing that I found of value in this opinion. Okay. Uh, next case we come to is State versus uh, Manka, I believe, M-A-N-K-A. Uh, this is an appeal from a uh, criminal conviction um, of 10 separate uh, charges coming out of a shooting incident in uh, Hall County. And uh, here the uh, big issues on appeal and the, the um, issues that I think are of value as far as from a legal standpoint are um, severance of the charges. Uh, there's a pretty thorough discussion of uh, when... Um, when charges should be uh, severed and when or whether they're properly joined. And so the analysis for uh, whether offenses are properly joined is, uh, first of all, whether the offenses are sufficiently related to be joinable, and then two, whether the joinder was prejudicial to the defendant. And so the first uh, test is a heavily factual test. You have to look at the underlying factual allegations and essentially uh, see if they are a same or similar character. I like to think of it, and it's probably not, that's maybe me reading into it, but it's like same new nucleus of operative fact kind of that um, test is what it almost looks like is if they arise out of that and so it's a, a factual determination and then as far as prejudice a defendant must show a compelling specific or actual prejudice from the court's refusal to grant a motion to sever and so here uh, the court found that there was not prejudice and that they were factually related and so um, they affirmed on those grounds but the discussion again um, is is I, you know, I think very valuable uh, there. Then there's some discussion of motions to suppress and then um, insufficiency of evidence and then also a piece on um, self-defense. And then the final thing was uh, the fact that the defendant was wearing shackles at the time the uh, verdict was rendered. And here I thought it was an interesting analysis of the fact that defendants are not supposed to be in shackles unless they're a danger. Um, here Manaka had actually escaped uh, from a hospital while this action was pending. And so I think that probably ruled against him pretty heavily and uh, went against even the fact if he was prejudiced by uh, the shackles, uh, the fact that he had escaped prior uh, was probably going to be a pretty big issue uh, for him. And then the final piece with the excessive sentence and it being within statutory limits. So eventually uh, we reached um, an affirmance. In Ray Trust of Hunt, uh, this is a lot of issues uh, here. A lot of facts, fact-heavy uh, opinion regarding you know individuals involved in the administration of a trust and a bank involved and what can the bank do as a trustee to deny uh, a request from someone uh, for an administration of a trust that they believe is appropriate. Involves a family trust and then the issues of undue influence and then ultimately uh, attorney's fees were awarded on behalf of the individual who was suggesting that the uh, trustee uh, and another individual involved uh, made mistakes in the, and the attorney's fees were jointly and severally liable with the attorney who brought the um, motion uh, and the petition in front of the county court. And that was actually uh, affirmed on appeal here as being completely frivolous. Um, so if you have a request for attorney's fees or if you're going to be um, you know, somebody's requesting attorney's fees from you based on frivolousness, or if you're in the middle of something that's absolutely frivolous, this is a case to take a look at uh, to see what standards there might be. Also, there's some good undue influence discussion. Um, there was, a, 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 I think, a mother here who was being 
berated uh, by her daughter to the point where um, she was admonished by uh, an attorney that she was trying to work with. And uh, the reason we know all that is because she was recording all the uh, conversations uh, with her mom and the attorney, and then she brought that uh, in front of the court's attention at trial, ultimately. So anyway, fact-heavy opinion if you get deal in the trust world at all and, and or have anything to do with undue influence or attorney's fees, um, take a look at this case. Okay. Um, the next opinion we come to is State versus Spangler. And here the uh, big crux of the issue is um, good time credit. Uh, Spangler um, entered a plea-based conviction to uh, various charges um, and essentially was trying to say that he deserved uh credit for time served on all these charges. Well, the standard here is that if a defendant is serving a sentence on a conviction for one offense while awaiting trial and sentencing on an unrelated offense, offense, he or she is not entitled to credit for time served on the sentence for the unrelated offenses. And you only get credit uh, once um, you you have multiple charges or multiple cases pending simultaneously. So they have to be at the same time, not something you're setting out. Um, And here, uh, essentially, the Court of Appeals says it's not clear um, when uh, he had ran all of his time on the offense he was already waiting on um, and then um, when he would have then been sitting to run out time on uh, his new cases. And so the record wasn't exactly clear on how much time he actually should have been given because he was released from one of the sentence um, after serving, they said, approximately 98 days. And so then he was sitting on his new sentences. And so they affirmed it in part as far as the um, plea and the conviction, didn't have any issues with that. But then they remanded it for further um, proceedings on the time served. All right. I have Isaac Cook v. Susan S., um, this is an interesting one. It's a harassment protection order appeal. Uh, Mr. Uh, Cook um, went to register deeds or something and got a bunch of addresses and started sending p- pamphlets uh, indicating his opposition to abortion in Nebraska and uh, it, you know, entirely. And he gets a response from one of the individuals. Um, this is Susan, sends him a response and says, thank you for the lovely reminder about misinformation. I have donated to Planned Parenthood in your name. He takes great offense to this and indicates that she is uh, illegally donating to Planned Parenthood in, in his name. And he indicates that she's you know involved in a conspiracy to commit murder and harassment and fraud and requests a harassment protection order from the district court. The district court ultimately denies uh, that protection order without a hearing or excuse me, it ultimately denies that protection order. I don't believe there was a hearing. And um, it says an unpro- or he was claiming he filed a motion for alteration or amendment saying that an unprovoked donation in another person's name is uh, to fund respondents' cause and retaliation for civil discourse is intimidating. So an interesting discussion there. Ultimately, on appeal, it was uh, affirmed, the denial of the protection order, and I think he had to pay uh, fees for that as well. And um, there's uh, also discussion about the harassment protection order 28-311.09 sub 7, um, that there's been an addition through the legislature of three additional sentences, including a specific reference to a petition for harassment protection order being quote, dismissed without a hearing. So you can do that um, and 
there's some claim here that uh, there also some frivolous claim on behalf of um, Susan uh, regarding Mr. Cook's um, allegations. So ultimately affirmed, quick read, four pages. I think that's it. You know that's it? It's Cinco de Mayo. It is Cinco de Mayo. What should we do about that? I should find the song that I'm going to play, right? I mean, I should find the song and then play it. I Whoa. think so. Wow. <laughs> Exciting. Is this right? It's got to build it. I'll wait for the drop. Oh, no. Not yet. Oh, it's coming. There we go. All right. Perfect. <laughs> well, I hope you have a great Cinco de Mayo. I hope you have a great week. That's it for Point uh, Two Law Review. They're brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Uh, offices in Holdridge, Kearney, and Minden. Anything else? I don't think so. All right. I'm John Brandt. Have a great weekend. And you are? Carson Messersmith. Thanks, everybody. If you want a good time, let's go. If you want to get wild, let's ride. If you want to get crazy, let's do it. And I say-